Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, this is episode three of the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, and today I'm thrilled to have a guest, my very first guest on this show, Dr. Lori Zollner, who joined me to talk about a highly effective form of treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder called prolonged exposure therapy or PE for short. Dr. Zollner is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington, where she serves as the director of the Center for Anxiety and Traumatic Stress. She is a world-renowned expert in trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and she has published extensively on factors involved in the development, maintenance, and treatment of PTSD. Her writing includes countless journal articles and book chapters, as well as the 2014 book she co-authored with Dr. Nora Feeney, entitled Facilitating Resilience and Recovery Following Trauma, which I highly recommend, especially to clinicians. On a personal note, Dr. Zollner was my advisor in graduate school, And as a former student of hers, I I couldn't be more excited to have her on this show. As you'll soon hear, she's brilliant and unbelievably generous and kind. And I, I just, I respect and admire her immensely. And before I move on to my interview with Dr. Zollner, I have to confess that I made a pretty big rookie mistake with this interview and completely forgot to record some sort of proper introduction for it. So Dr. Zollner and I started off our conversation joking about some technical difficulties that we had had, and then we moved right on to catching up about things that aren't relevant at all to this podcast. So obviously I edited all of that chit-chat out, but what that means is that in a minute, we're going to dive right into the interview without even so much as a hello exchange between Dr. Zollner and I. Uh, And that was just one of many mistakes that I have made so far with this podcast. And I can pretty much guarantee that there are likely going to be plenty more to come, no matter how much I try to get things right. In fact, I'm almost finding that the more I try to do things right, the more mistakes I seem to make. Uh, And so rather than fret about each of these goofs, I'm doing my best to embrace and accept these imperfections, accept that they're going to be there, and prioritize getting episodes out into the world rather than doing them perfectly. And 
Uh, as you'll hear, I not only failed to, to introduce Dr. Zollner in the interview, but also to really introduce the topic for today. And so I want to note here that I decided to focus on prolonged exposure therapy in this interview, given that it's considered a gold standard treatment for PTSD, with many, many randomized controlled trials, or RCTs, supporting its use. So we've got a lot of data suggesting that PE is an effective treatment for PTSD, and it's a therapy that I use when treating PTSD. But it's important to note that it's not the only treatment for PTSD. And I'm going to save a discussion of other treatment options for PTSD for future episodes, but I do want to give a bit of an overview of PE before moving on to my interview with Dr. Zollner, given again that I, I kind of neglected to do so in the interview. So briefly, PE is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that is typically delivered over the course of about 10 60 or 90 minute sessions. It's an intense but short-term treatment that was designed to help people overcome debilitating symptoms of PTSD. And unlike more supportive talk therapies, the focus of each session of PE is on PTSD specifically, including trauma memories and reminders, and it includes daily homework or practice assignments that patients are asked to complete in between sessions. And these practice assignments help people to approach rather than avoid objectively safe but feared trauma memories and reminders, as do the exposures that people do in session. And if you listen to the last episode, you'll know that this is key because it's this avoidance that, while entirely understandable, actually maintains post-trauma reactions in the long run, including unhelpful thoughts and beliefs that can develop in the wake of a trauma. And Dr. Zollner and I uh, talk a bit more about this in the interview, and it's actually here that I, I began the interview for today with a discussion about the rationale for PE. So I'm going to pause here and move on now to the interview. And so, with that said, here's my interview with Dr. Lori Zollner. Welcome, Lori. Last time, I talked about avoidance and its role in the development and maintenance of PTSD. And I'm hoping you can start us off today by talking about the rationale for prolonged exposure therapy and how it helps to break the habit of reducing anxiety through avoidance. Yeah, no, thank you very much for that question. We see avoidance as, as being really a, a, a fundamental process that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you've probably already talked to your listeners about that, that avoidance in, in many ways is helpful and adaptive and, and lets you be able to do the things that you need to be able to do um, to function and, and live life. Um, but at some point in time, avoidance starts actually kind of short-circuiting your life and ends up limiting what you can do and how you do things. And in some ways, one of the best examples that we give people is that you end up living like you're in a cave, that avoidance lets you um, feel and be protected, but it's still a dark, 
stanky um, cave where you're all alone. And, and, and for that reason, we often think that, that targeting the avoidance is one of the great ways for somebody to help um, reclaim their life and, and make steps to, to moving forward. Um, and the reality is, of course, people would avoid. These are the worst things that have happened to them in their lives. And, and also the things that um, makes perfect sense to want to keep yourself safe and to keep yourself protected and to avoid that horrible, terrible thing that, that had happened in the past. So, so with, with, with trauma exposure and PTSD, the avoidance makes a lot of sense. And so it's one of those things that we really take a gradual approach with and, and try to whittle away at. And, and there's some amount of avoidance that's helpful and adaptive. And there's some amount of avoidance that is keeping you from living your life the way that you need to. And so really the focus of a therapy like prolonged exposure is to really tackle that maladaptive avoidance. And, and it does that in a couple of ways. One of them is, is approaching the things in your life that you have been avoiding because of the trauma. But those are really the things that are, are if an outside observer was going to look in, they'd say that they're relatively safe. That, um, you know, if you were somebody who um, had been sexually assaulted at, at um, coming out of a restaurant at night, and, and now you don't go out of your house at night, you don't go out with friends, you, um, you don't go out to um, any restaurants whatsoever, um, you know, there's probably a degree of, 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 of social connectedness. And I guess during the pandemic, you probably wouldn't be doing these things anyhow. But, uh, but there's, a, there's a functional loss that you have for not doing those things. And by and large, going to restaurants, going and hanging out with friends, going out at night, for most people is not objectively dangerous. And obviously that changes based on where you are and what your neighborhood is and all of those pieces to it, but it's generally safe. And, and so in therapy and prolonged exposure, particularly, we are thinking about approaching um, gradually the things in life that you've been avoiding in small incremental steps. And, and it's whittling away at that avoidance and really trying to um, reclaim or claim the life that, that you wanna be living again. And the same thing is actually the case um, for the memories about what happened. And a lot of times um, you know, people stuff down these memories, they push them down and they, they think, you know, it's better just not to think about it. Cause if I think about it, it's just too hard, it's too much. And for some people that stuffing down and pushing down of the memories, it works. Um, but for a whole nother host of people, it, it doesn't work and, and they're still, they're feeling like they're fighting the memories all the time. And they're feeling like the memories are coming up at different places and different times and they're not able to control their emotions. And so in some ways, the memory kind of takes on a life of its own in a way that um, is this big elephant that keeps on popping up in a room for someone. And when you're really, I think a lot of people can realize that, that that avoidance isn't working. 
Mm -hmm. and, and that it's really important to talk about and to process what happened. And so at some point in time, a light bulb comes on in people's heads of like, I've been pushing this down. I've been avoiding it. I haven't really dealt with it. And in prolonged exposure, it, the, the focus is, is to not avoid that memory or those memories anymore. Um, but to realize that um, I need to talk about it, I need to process it. And, and so same kind of way, um, you know, in a gradual step process, uh, the therapist and, and you actually work together to, to, um, to look at the memory, to examine the memory, to talk about it. And, and it does also have a gradual component to it of, of first just touching it and, and, and looking at it and touching it a little bit. And then it starts getting in and digging into the harder parts of the memory and going into what you thought as it was happening, how you felt as it, as it was happening. Some of the things that you probably you know, are avoiding and don't wanna talk about. And then, and then it also shifts into talking about the hardest things about the memory. And in therapy, we call that hot spots. Um, but we think that those are really important pieces be, because those are probably the core pieces that need to be addressed and, and need to be processed. And, and so that's really what a therapist would, would do is, is help you eventually get to a place that you could talk about the hardest parts. And, and what's amazing is when you start talking about the hardest parts, um, Oftentimes, how you think about what happened and how you make meaning of, of what has actually happened um, changes dramatically. And, it, and, it, and it's no longer as scary to look and touch the memory. You know what it is. You know what's there. You know that you can handle it. And um, there's a sense of power that, that comes over the memory and also a sense of control over the memory. So we really think uh, that it makes a lot of sense to, to target avoidance and to target avoidance not only in, in your life, but also in the memories about what happened as well. Wow, that's a really helpful and compelling explanation for why we'd want to go out of our way to intentionally approach these upsetting and anxiety-provoking trauma memories and reminders. And I'm wondering if you can talk now a bit about how long this process typically takes and what kind of trajectories of change we tend to see in treatment with prolonged exposure. Well, it's, it's an interesting that you raise that. We were just talking with a group of therapists this morning. And, you know, generally we think about a range somewhere between 10 to 12 uh, sessions oftentimes meeting every week for 60 to 90 minutes. But there's also modalities where, where people come in and, and, uh, and are being seen every day for a shorter period of time, like for two weeks. Uh, and, and some of those more intensive models also seem helpful. But what I, what I was gonna say that we were talking about this morning was that everybody's trajectory looks a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And, and there's some folks that really all they need to do is break that avoidance and you really all of a sudden see what you'd almost call a, a one-step model of change where the, the person's, you know, has high levels of symptoms and then they drop down really quickly and then they stay down. 
And then there's other people that, that have much more of a, uh, we would almost call it a sawtooth model of change, where you're kind of going up and down and up and down, but generally going down. And, and then there's other folks who, who slowly go down. And, and then a final group that stay up pretty high for a while, and it really takes a good chunk of time, like eight sessions, nine sessions, 10 sessions, before they all of a sudden get that kind of breakthrough mm-hmm. that, that they need to do there. And so I wouldn't say that there's a one-size-fits-all model of how people change, but I would say that um, some degree of persistence um, is needed because you don't know necessarily, and we don't know necessarily what what trajectory of change somebody's going to be on. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I, Cause in terms of thinking about the trajectory of change, I know some people have concern that exposures might in some way worsen their symptoms mm-hmm. and it makes a lot of sense, right? They've been mm-hmm. avoiding because whenever they approach things, mm-hmm. when they remember what happened, they feel really mm-hmm. anxious. And so with treatment, they're going to start to approach those mm-hmm. things again. Um, and so I think even clinicians, I've, I've met many who have that concern that mm-hmm. prolonged exposure might make people sometimes worse. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how often symptom exacerbations mm-hmm. actually occur mm-hmm. in PD, and then, and then what happens if and when they do, what mm-hmm. comes next? Yeah. Well, thank you for circling back to that. Uh, because yes, um, you know, there, there are going to be a subset of people who, um, particularly if you've been avoiding um, and, and haven't been approaching, approaching these things in your life, may have an increase in symptoms. And, and typically what we see, and, and I'm not remembering the numbers exactly off the top of my head, but it's probably more around 10 to 15% maybe up to 20%, but a, a, a small proportion of people, not, not everyone. And, and typically what you see is you see a brief up and then you see a very quick down. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the thought is that it's, it's that initial uh, kind of breakthrough of the avoidance that's there. And, and then and people feel a little bit more anxious. They feel more on edge. They might even also feel more down or, or more depressed. Uh, but it typically in uh, it, there's now been a, a series of studies and and our team has has did one study 20 years ago and then recently replicated it um, with uh, Rosemary Walker being the first author on on the paper um, just showing that the pattern of exacerbation that's there only occurs for a small number of people that it's temporary and so you you almost see it go down by the next session and and that it's not related to dropout and it's not related to worse outcome so so really even if you see it you can kind of expect it for some people and if you do it's normal it's a common reaction that of course you've been avoiding and now you're trying to stop avoiding and so it's you know symptoms can go up for people Um, but the good news is is that if you hang with it um, you know, generally people stick with therapy. They aren't more likely to drop out if they had that exacerbation and they're just as likely to have really good outcomes at the end. So, so there the message really is one of, um, 
if it happens, don't freak out about it. Um, and, and, and recognize that, um, that it makes sense and, and it will, will go down. Um, and we don't see in the data people going up and staying up, you know, um, we don't see you kind of, there's nothing to indicate over at this point in time, hundreds of people, um, and PE being done now by thousands of people, um, that, that you're going to move up into a trajectory of getting stuck at a high level of, of distress and symptoms. Um, but I would say as well, the therapist in those cases is encouraging somebody to continue to approach and to do the things that would actually help reduce the symptoms over time as well and, and encouraging, uh, encouraging you to, to stick with it too. So yes, it, it, it makes sense. I also think that there's exacerbation in other therapies as well. And, and oftentimes it's not, not measured. Um, but when you start approaching and start dealing with, with hard stuff, um, it is destabilizing for folks. Um, and, and sometimes that destabilization is good because it helps promote and, and push change. And so I think, if anything, we've probably studied it more in PE because of the things that, that you're mentioning. Uh, but I also think it happens in other therapies as well. Yeah. The other thing that we often talk talk to people about is it's 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 kind of like they've had a wall up, kind of protecting themselves, and and the first time that they approach, they they let that wall down, mm-hmm. and and then it gets scary, and all of a sudden that wall comes back up again, and 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 so the idea of of realizing that it's kind of gradually building down that wall, mm-hmm. um, and and um, and allowing yourself to feel and to experience um, the emotions and the thoughts that that happened around the trauma, and and that in and of itself is not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I also would say the other thing I would add in here is is that we're talking about not something that you're doing for uh, months or years. We're really talking about doing this type of work in a time limited. Um, uh, directed uh, focus. And so if you kept on doing this for three years, I, I you know, that isn't the intention of, of, of this. The intention really is to help somebody start letting those avoidance walls go down. And, and yes, sometimes those walls go back up again. Mm-hmm. And then you just keep on whittling away at those walls. And, um, and, and what we see is, is that, you know, when people do that, they, they do experience a good degree of relief and, and we see their symptoms go down and we see their functioning in the world go up. And so that's really encouraging. Yeah. And in the meantime, before that happens, they start to learn that they can tolerate whatever distress mm-hmm. seems so intolerable for so long. Yeah. Yeah, people often have the thoughts, I can't think about it, or I don't want to think about it. It's too much. It's too hard. And, you know, trauma survivors are strong. I mean, they really are and and resilient people. And they, they've been through some of the worst things that can happen in somebody's life. And, and they're on the other side. Yeah. And, and so um, to forget that these are, are, are not strong, resilient people is also a, a therapeutic mistake mm-hmm. in some ways. So. Yeah. And 
important to note because I mentioned last time as well that often another factor that maintains post-trauma reactions is the presence of unhelpful thoughts and beliefs. And that sometimes those thoughts are about, you know, oneself and believing that you know I'm weak because I have these symptoms in the first place. And I think that that piece is important to note that yeah, the the strength, uh, even just seeking out help, seeking out mm-hmm. treatment, that's a huge sign of strength and courage. Uh, and, and that they can do this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So before we before we talk a little bit more about treatment, I'm realizing one thing I, I didn't ask is just general response rates. Um, how effective is is treatment? Mm-hmm. That, that's a great question. Um, and a somewhat loaded question too, because how do you determine what is effective, right? And, and so are we talking about um, moving to a level of, of non-clinical mild levels of, of symptoms of PTSD and depression? Are we talking about losing a PTSD diagnosis? Are we, um, are we talking about regaining more, more functioning in somebody's life? Um, so, or are we just talking about um, a certain percentage reduction of symptoms? Sometimes in, in, the, in the psychiatric literature, it's, you know, is, has there been a 10% reduction of symptoms? Has there been a 50% reduction of symptoms? And, and so one of the first questions you have to ask yourself is what, what's the outcome we care about? And, and, that's, and that's not always an easy question. <laughs> um, but a lot of times, what we're looking for is, particularly with traumas, we're looking for um, functioning across a variety of indices. And, and in here, I'm talking about both um, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, PTSD symptoms going down, and also depression symptoms going down. Um, and then sometimes as well, functioning improving. Um, and depending on who you're looking at and who you're you're talking to, they'll use different definitions for these things. Um, in um, in a lot of our data, what we look at is we look at an indice that is a shift between the likelihood of somebody being in a clinical distribution versus being in a non-clinical distribution. And so when has the probability shifted that this person is actually um, no longer, um, no longer falls into clinical levels of of problems and functioning. And when we look at these indices, um, PE in particular does does relatively well. Um, And we're we're typically thinking of of response rates in the 70%, um, if not, not higher. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting in the data is, is that um, a lot of times um, we pay a lot of attention to um, when people uh, drop out of therapy. And <coughs> there's, a, there's different groups. Um, there's a group who, who drops out before they even try therapy. So um, you're just talking to them about what, um, what, um, what you're gonna do. And, and then the, the person never even follows through to, to get started with actual therapy. And so that's kind of a drop before you try group. And then there's another, another group of folks that's, that's a drop after you try. 
And so that is, is you know, they've, they've tried three or four or five sessions and they say it's not worth it. And, and then kind of drop out at any point in time. But, um, you know, the, the non-response rate that I'm talking about oftentimes comes from the never try group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the, the folks that don't make the leap between talking about doing it and then getting started doing it. Mm-hmm. And it ties in really closely to some of the things that we were talking about with avoidance, right? And, um, and so when we think about kind of how we want to improve our therapies, one of the big areas really is about how to get at this, this never try group and, um, and helping people make the leap to coming into, not only just coming into the door, but starting the therapy itself. Mm-hmm. And, and once, you know, you start getting to know a therapist, you start understanding the rationale for what's there, the likelihood of dropout actually goes down in those other groups. So, um, so when we're thinking about non-response rates, some of the non-response rates, some of that 30% is from the individuals that never even really try. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and let me just clarify as well. It's not that they're not trying. Um, I'm using the wrong label here <laughs> in some ways. They're never trying the therapy. I, I completely believe that they are wanting to be in therapy mm-hmm. and, and that they are trying the best that they can to get in or to be able to start, but there's something blocking it or something that's making it hard. Mm-hmm. So um, that's one of the groups that I think is, is really important in our next generation of therapies to really, or, or additions to our therapies to really um, target and help. How do we come alongside people quicker and, and help them through that initial hump that's there? Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because I think so often when I'm working with people, they tell me that it's that anticipatory anxiety that's mm-hmm. actually hardest to, to mm-hmm. and that pull to avoid is so strong. But then once they actually approach, it becomes a lot easier. So it makes mm-hmm. sense that maybe a lot of the dropout might come from people who haven't really actually gone into the water yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, huh. yeah. And, and, um, yeah, and provide some some peace for all of us to think about of how do we do this better, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to save this for a little later, but jumping ahead, can you talk a little bit about some of those kind of those efforts to do this better? Some of those efforts mm-hmm. to optimize treatment and, mm-hmm. and potentially even help bring somebody into the door and keep them in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think these are these are all things that, that we're thinking about, right? And and um, I think one of the pieces that uh, that we've known for a long time in in um, in our work is is that um, it's not just um, the presence of of the negative, um, distressing, upsetting images. Um, and the presence of, of, of depression symptoms of, of loss of interest and being down and, and feelings of guilt and, and the cadre of, of kind of negative symptoms. But the other piece is the absence of positive symptoms. Right? I, and the wrong word there is not symptoms, but positive feelings and positive emotions. And uh, we, we see it that um, it's really hard for people who are, are depressed or have PTSD to, um, 
think about specific memories of things that are positive in their life. And it's really hard to remember positive things. And sometimes it, it almost seems like it's a protective factor, right? That, that um, if I don't think about the positive things, I, I, I won't have to think about how my life has changed so, so horribly since then. And so sometimes the, the positive actually flips you over in some ways to the negative. Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening is, is that there's oftentimes not a lot of positive emotions and not a lot of positive um, uh, thinking about previous positive memories or anticipating future positive things. And, and I think a, a lot of our therapies, you know, we focus on the negative because that's really where people are stuck. But part of the picture is also this absence of the positive. And, and in some ways, I think there's things that we could do, not necessarily to make therapy more fun, but to, to balance out the negative that's in therapy as well. That, you know, you're coming in and talking about the hardest times in your life. And I think there's ways that we can build in um, positive and work on, on flexing that adaptive positive muscle just as much as we're flexing and processing the negative pieces that are there. And so some of the next waves of therapies are really going to be thinking about how do we tackle some of this deficit in positive of, um, you know, going after and dealing with positive memories, savoring positive experiences, creating positive experiences. And hopefully some of that will actually build, um, build uh, even our therapy sessions to potentially be, I don't want to say more fun, but, um, you know, uh, but I, I think uh, it'll hit for a lot of people, not only dealing with the negative emotions that are there, but also building some of the positive experiences that people have had. And, and so that's one of the areas where, where we're really working. Um, another area where, where we're really working and focusing is, is really thinking about what are the steps that we can do to... Um, make therapy most efficient for people. And, um, and some of that is really targeting and understanding the mechanisms driving change. Mm -hmm. And, um, and some of it as well is, is, um, is just even thinking about our delivery modalities. And uh, there are there's no reason why therapy has to be one hour a week um, for 10 weeks, 12 weeks, a year, those kind of pieces. Um, you know, there are, are different models that we can do and um, we can do therapy much more intensively. And, and we see for some people that it really is um, super helpful to do, you know, to do five sessions for one week and five sessions the next week. Oh. And, then, and then actually made good change and good progress. And a lot of times people really like it um, to do more of an intensive model. And, and it's for a number of reasons. One is you can carve out that time and you're not thinking about the next three months, six months, you know, in, in your life. But, and so it allows kind of a carving out time of focusing, but it also therapeutically really lets you build on the gains that you make in one session. And sometimes it feels like you go for a week and then a whole bunch of life happens and then you have to come back to this again. 
and and try to pick up where you left off and then a whole bunch of life happens and then you're doing that again it's kind of that um you know um two steps forward one step back two steps forward one step back kind of piece uh, but you don't have that when you're doing it on a on a daily basis and um and so it's really nice to be able to believe um you know, to pick up at one place and pick up really exactly, you know, close to that place the next day. And so um, there's good reason to have some some encouraging um, promise at the thought of, of much more um, short-term interventions than what we've even been talking about before in the past. And we're seeing data that the gains that are made in those <laughs> um, really can can last as, as long as the gains in a more uh, lengthened therapy. I think though, it, it's definitely hard for folks to believe that those gains are real in that short kind of period of time. And so I think that's one of the hard things that both therapists and, and, um, and clients kind of struggle with of like, okay, all these things have changed. Is it really real? Is it going to stick? And so I think there's, there's some trepidation that it's, it's almost too much change too fast. Um, but so far, um, in general, the, the, the information we have is that the, the change is, is good and solid. And, and, there's, and, I, and I think it particularly holds promise for when we're talking about co-occurring conditions like uh, you know, substance use disorders, um, cannabis use disorder, alcohol, um, you know, uh, related problems that in some ways getting in for a short period of time and working on it um, maybe a, a strategy that prevents dropout and actually helps people engage within a time limited period and probably also fits into, um, you know, programs like substance use programs that, that are inpatient for a shorter period of time too. Hmm. Yeah, that so. makes sense if someone can take, you know, has a two week period that they can really devote and, and make therapy essentially their full-time mm -hmm. job to be able to then start feeling better sooner. That makes a mm -hmm. lot of sense. Yeah. Huh. And you know, what factors, if any, predict whether someone will do well in PE? And mm -hmm. if there are any, you mentioned substance use disorders. I'm wondering if there are any contraindications mm -hmm. for the use of PE. Yeah. Yeah. Those are those are good questions. Um we have been looking long and hard for uh, for who for how to predict who does really well and and who doesn't. And the reality is that that it's pretty hard to to figure out predictors. Um, and and very few have emerged in the literature when we pull pull everything together and try to to look at it as consistent predictors. And at first you can scratch your head and say, oh dear, that's not good. I'd like to know, you know, what would be a good, we use the term prescriptive predictor, right? Mm -hmm. That you do this therapy if you have this condition. And, um, and we're struggling to find it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what's, what's good about that though is, is it means that there isn't like the perfect patient for this, that people can come from all realms and walks of life and have all different types of, of problems that are there um, and, and all different types of traumas too. Um, 
and and yet um, can benefit from from therapy. Um, so older versus younger, not as strong of a predictor as you'd think. Um, longer time since since trauma exposure, not not as powerful as you would think. Um, single event versus multiple prolonged events, again, not as as powerful as you would think. Presence of co-occurring depression, not as powerful as you would think. And so in some ways, what we read that to be is it's good news. It doesn't mean that for an individual person, um, you know, it may not be effective or may not be helpful, but on the aggregate or out across a whole bunch of individuals, we aren't seeing those, those specific predictors. We obviously hope though, as, as we start being in a place that, you know, people always talk about big data and big science and, um, and we hope that when we start getting into much more larger numbers uh, and being able to pool together data, we're going to be able to see better uh, prescriptive predictors. But you know, the the small data that we have here, and it's not small, but this small compared to hundreds of thousands of people, um, doesn't say that we're going to see big ones. Mm. If that makes any sense. Um, you also asked about contraindications. I, you know, I, I think really what you want to have in your mind is, is are, are the trauma symptoms your, your main problem right now? Is uh, the intrusive experiencing, the avoidance, the negative beliefs about yourself, the chronic hyperarousal, are those kind of the set of symptoms that are really the issues in your life? And, um, if the answer is a yes to that, then it's probably a good fit. Um, but you can start thinking about very quickly a whole other range of scenarios where the answer may be, well, kinda, mm -hmm. but there's also this. And, and so we also very much think about, um, very much think about, you know, are there times that you need to be doing treatment concurrently with something else? And it, we used to think that we, we then for some people would sequence treatment. Um, you know, we used to think, well, if there's a substance use problem, you have to start off with the substance use and then you move into the PTSD. And the, the literature coming out there is that you can work on both of them simultaneously. And, and, it's, and it's really helpful to be able to do that. And um, some of the work coming out of the University of Washington, uh, Melanie Harned's group, mm -hmm. um, argues that that similar is true for for suicidality. That uh, for people who are acutely actively suicidal, that there is a set of skills that you want them to have before you have them go in and work on the trauma work that's there. But uh, just because you um, um, have have uh, repetitive suicide thoughts or plans doesn't mean that you can't do trauma-focused work. And, and so some of, the, some of the old views that we had about it are gradually shifting and changing and arguing that it's possible to do a lot of these things at the same time. And sometimes it's actually helpful because they're related to each other and to separate them out is, is a mistake as well. Hmm. Okay. And so earlier you mentioned that, that, you know, in terms of repeated trauma, that that's not necessarily, it's people who have repeated trauma exposure don't necessarily do it worse in treatment. I know some, some people, some clinicians have concerns that 
those with a history of repeated trauma exposure or childhood abuse might not be good fits for PE, that it, mm-hmm. it might just be too tough for them. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the research says about that in particular? Well, at some point in time, I, I should disclose that the person who's asking the question has actually done some of the research on this topic. And um, if you if you do a little bit of looking up, you will see that that um, Alyssa has 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 done some of some of the work in this area. Uh, but what I would say is in a lot of our clinical trials, 20, 30, 40 percent of the participants are, are, are individuals who have a history of childhood sexual abuse. And, and so it's a it's a subset of, of the clinical trials that's really, really well represented. And um, and and you know, I think oftentimes where people get stuck a little bit is that they think about um, prolonged exposure as as being focusing on one memory. And, 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 and then it starts getting really complicated for, well, this abuse happened every day for X number of years. There's no one memory. There's a huge host of memory. And, and some of that is, is probably a misunderstanding of, of thinking about what we're trying to do in that um, we're really, um, when we're doing therapy is we're trying to um, trauma shifts how you think about yourself, how you think about the world, how you think about other people. It shifts your schema of how you walk through the world. And, and what we're trying to do is get into that, that fear schema that somebody has and, and um, examine it and look at it and touch it and think about it. And, and so just, just like um, you know, somebody who has been through multiple trauma exposures also has a fear schema and it you know, it's got multiple little theory, multiple little, um, little, multiple events associated with it. Um, but a lot of the themes and a lot of the connections between, you kind of think about it as like a web when you're thinking about a schema with a bunch of, you know, spokes and, and dots and stuff all around it. But um, some of the same themes run across those events um, about being helpless or unable to protect yourself or, um, being scared, um, and so so the target is to get into those the, that schema and examine it and talk about it and, and touch it. And so, um, in some ways, it makes more sense to think about it in that way as opposed to that you know there's one memory that we need to target, and then there's fifty memories that we need to target, and that's really not what we're trying to do. Hmm. So maybe just talking even about one memory, potentially the most distressing memory might be sufficient for helping someone to target all of those unhelpful beliefs and that you know exist surrounding all of the events, all of the traumas that they experienced. Yeah, if you think about them being interconnected with one another and not events that happen in isolation, it makes even more sense, right? That that touching one will help change your thinking and almost have like a spreading activation across the rest of the web um, and change how you think about those other pieces as well. And clinically, we see that happening all the time, that you don't have to touch on every single thing that happened to you to, um, to, um, to make changes. Um, Yeah. Hmm. And it's kind of similar to what we see with regard to symptoms too, right? In PE, you're focusing primarily on avoidance and yet mm-hmm. other symptoms t- tend to 
resolve as well. Difficulties concentrating or sleeping get better mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. stop avoiding and start approaching as well. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting. Um, okay. Well, I know you're going to need to get going soon. So I want to ask you, um, for those listening, whether they are, uh, you know, just people who are curious to learn about PTSD, individuals who might have PTSD or know someone who does, or clinicians who uh, see people with PTSD or are considering gaining or seeking out additional training in trauma-focused treatment, such as prolonged exposure therapy. What would you want people to take from this conversation? So many things. Um... I, I think one of the pieces would be, um, you know, um, it's, it's important to talk about what happened. It's important not to avoid. And, and ironically, um, uh, you know, going in and digging and, and talking and processing is, is the way to hope. Mm -hmm. and, and is a real powerful way of hope. And, and obviously there's, there's other ways to make change as well. And, and prolonged exposure isn't the only therapy that, that is effective or helpful um, for PTSD, depression and anxiety following trauma. But, um, you, know, um, you know, stick with it, even if things feel hard and they're gonna feel hard because this is hard stuff, um, but you're stronger than you think you are. And, um, and if you stick with it, there's hope. And there's, there's good evidence in the lives of hundreds and thousands of people who've, who've gone through this therapy before you that, um, that it can be helpful for you. And, and there's good scientific evidence as well. And, and so sometimes you have to, have to trust beyond yourself. Um, and, and sometimes you have to trust yourself that, that, that you're stronger than you think you are too. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's really helpful. So trust in the process and trust in yourself. Mm -hmm. Good takeaways. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lori. I so appreciate your time. And I have a feeling people listening will also really appreciate this interview. Well, thank you for having me. And it's so nice to talk with you. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section of my website, alyssajared.com.